Welcome to another podcast from Best Self Magazine, the leading voice for self-empowerment, holistic health, and authentic living. Lodro Rensler, thank you for welcoming us into what I'm sure you now call your home away from home. <laughs> yes, thanks for coming. This gorgeous drop-in meditation studio um, where you uh, serve as Chief Spiritual Officer. I'm so excited about this project and I know we'll, we'll dive into more of this, but I'm totally distracted by this incredible <laughs> beauty in the background. If you want to just tell us about this. This whole thing? Yeah, this whole thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're in the private room in Mindful, which is the space that we often consider a sanctuary here. You know, it's so hard to find quiet spaces and also green spaces in the city. So we really think this is the quietest room in all of New York. and. Being here, actually having some greenery, uh, is really important to us. So this is actually done by The Sill, which is a beautiful company that brings greenery into everyone's office. And they've been so wonderfully supportive of the space and making sure that it feels alive. I mean, yes, we've made it's it look like feel alive. Like, oh like it's totally alive. alive. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I have to say, I mean, I was going to start with something completely different. But I arrived here early, and this, I have to say, this literally is the quietest place I've ever been in New York City. And even in the short time I was here, it just was completely transformative. And I was just observing people coming in and out and actually taking a class, and then the transformation of seeing them afterwards. And um, beyond that, even, I mean, everybody's so happy here. Yeah, I mean, it's something really beautiful. I think we created a space that's not only quiet, but inviting, that's cozy. And you walk in and you're just like, oh, I can take a breath. We hold our bodies so tightly in the city yeah. like this. And here you walk in and you're like, oh my gosh, I can just relax for a second. Yeah, really just like take, it's like, you know, shoes off, phones off. Yeah, like actually connect to another human being. It's yeah. really friendly here. Yeah, like really everyone's friendly. really friendly. I know, touch a time out, right? People meet each other, they become friends, they end up going on dates, like all different connections are You've being You've got a lot of here. great stories about that. But this oh, is God. this <laughs> is really um, such an intriguing adventure. But before we go any further, okay. allow me to gush over a little bit of your bio background because I really want to make sure, sure that our audience knows who this great guy in the... Uh, orange bow tie with the live wall is. You are a Buddhist practitioner and meditation teacher, author of five books. Fresh out of college, you were recruited to be the executive director of the Boston Shambhala Center, and you went on to serve as head of development for Shambhala internationally, founded the Institute for Compassionate Leadership, the Daily Dharma Gathering, and now Mindful. You've been meditating since you were six years old, you spent a month before college living in a monastery. I read that you received two heirlooms from your parents before leaving for Wesleyan University, a mala and a flask, which you said you put to very good use over the course of the next four years. And I think that that's a really good way to segue into why your voice is so fresh and so relatable and so down to earth and what I like to call a take it to the street Zen reality sensibility, which in essence is how we bring something from the cushion to the world. Yeah, thank you for that. That's very kind of you to say. You know, I was just thinking as you were going through all that, I was like, gosh, I guess, you know, there's a lot of stories I read It's someone that they had this sort of life and then they discovered their spiritual background. And for me, I was raised within a spiritual background. I was raised within the Shambhala Buddhist tradition, meditating from a young age. So you said running off to the monastery, shaving my head, taking the robes, the whole nine yards. 
And then only when I got to college was I all of a sudden like, oh, right, worldly stuff. Like, I'm also going to go out to parties with friends, and I'm interested in dating, and all of these other things were making themselves known to me. So it's sort of like a story in reverse in that way. Right. So for me, it was always about how do I take the meditation practice off the cushion and into the rest of my life so that we're not separating out your meditation practice, your spiritual beliefs, your religious beliefs, if you have right. them. And you're going out with friends and your romantic endeavors and your work ventures. Like they should actually be able to come together. If we use a term like meditation practice, it only stands to reason that we're practicing for the rest of our life so it can be more present and compassionate in that as well. Right. And that's a big thing. I think it's this this sense of compartmentalization. That's where we sort of get we have a hiccup, you know, it's where we get lost. And you had me, uh, I remember this book very well, you had me at Buddha Walks Into a Bar. <laughs> right at the title, right. <laughs> you had me there. Um, and so it seems like when I was when I was researching and I was looking at the book titles and, and just reading your bio and following your journey, it feels like all roads have led to mindful. Yeah, I mean, I do think we tell these stories we're like, oh, look at how I came to here, and then we tell it in different ways. But it's interesting for me, there's the overarching intention, okay, of I want to make meditation as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. That's always been my dream, my goal. And then there's the circuitous route that is actually more painful about getting there. So there is an element of, okay, I started a meditation group at college, I found a passion for like making this accessible to young people, that led to me becoming the director. Of well, the don't Washington don't fluff over that. Talk about college. You you did okay. that was you know. Yeah, I mean, I I got to college and I'd been so used to meditating with groups all my life growing up in it. I thought, well, there's got to be Where's my group? Yeah, where's my group? So I put up posters all around campus. I was like, hey, come meditate with me. Keg party or meditation. Like, like, I think I made it like a reasonable like one o'clock on a Sunday. Like by the time you get up, then you can go have a keg. Right, and um, then people showed up and they were like, I don't know how to meditate. I thought you were going to teach us. I was like, oh, I don't, I can't do that. But I turned to all of my mentors and we were bringing people in. Eventually they said, listen, you have all the qualifications to go do a teacher training. Go do it. Right. And then you do it. I was very shy about that. But I felt pushed into it and I felt like I had to if I was actually going to respond to the need there. Sort of owning that title of teacher. And it took me a long time to do it and also took me a long time to actually sort of you went around can. campus and put posters up. I, I think that qualifies you for, you know, <laughs> it's okay. like if you were brave enough to do that, that's, yeah. that's quite bold. Thank you. Yeah. And quite amazing. So, that, I mean, that was my college experience. You know, I found a lot of people that wanted to learn how to meditate and I tried to make it really helpful and applicable. Right. And, um, and I'm proud to say that, you know, however, I won't reveal exactly how many, many years ago it was, but we founded a little house there called Buddhist House. It's now renamed Middle House, like the Middle Way. Um, but it's still there. It's still standing. 18 people live there. They practice regularly in terms of offering meditation, and it's amazing. But I also want to be clear with everybody. It's not that you were trying to uh, convert anyone. Oh, you God. Know? It's, it's yeah. not like you were opening up a Buddhist meditation center and saying, don't drink, don't party, don't live your life. You were saying, let's try to incorporate all these things, and let's bring mindfulness, and let's drink like a Buddha. I mean, for me, it's always been like, okay, it's college students, right? Right. It, it, talking to college students about like not drinking is like going to a high school and saying, hey, no sex. Yes, there's condoms. Right. Yes, I'm not right. going to talk to you about that. Right. Just, Just don't say no. Just say no. Um, it doesn't work. Right. right. So if college students are going to be drinking, I'm not going to sit there and say don't drink. It's like, right. how do you actually bring some of these tools so you don't lose your mind when you're drinking? So right. you don't get crazy and make mistakes when you're drinking. Can we actually maintain a sense of mindfulness and compassion, even in the act when you go out with friends? You had some really awesome quotes about meditation, and I want—I don't want to gloss over those. You said, 
Meditation is indeed hard work. You also said um, meditation practice can feel boring. There, I said it. And meditation has made me kinder or at least less of a jerk. Yeah, I, w- I will stand by all three. Um, I think a lot of well, the misconception around meditation these days is you should be able to come into a place like mindful, take a 30 or 45 minute class and just turn off your mind. Right. And the mind, that's not how it works, right? It's like the mind's always generating thoughts and concepts and emotions. We might as well be like, oh, the beating of my heart's too loud. I need to stop. Right. Like, no, that's not helpful. You would, in both cases, you would die. You know? Right. So instead, we're befriending ourselves. We're actually becoming familiar with what's coming up in our minds. And that's a hard thing to do for many of us, to actually befriend ourselves. But ultimately, every time that we drift off in meditation, we're like, oh, I can come back. Not a big deal. Mm-hmm. I'm not horrible for thinking during meditation. I'm not bad at this. I'm not wrong. Right. It's an act of forgiveness. We're like, oh, it's okay. We treat ourselves with some kindness. And the more we actually treat ourselves with kindness, the more kindness we have to offer to others. Right. And I think there's a, there, are, there are myths about meditation. For example, you don't have to convert to Buddhism to, to meditate. There are no demographics here. It crosses all demographics, race, religion, gender. This is about a practice of centering oneself and calming and connecting. Spot on. I mean, really, here at Mindful, we've got these classes offered all day, every day. And it's such a cross-section of New York that comes here. Right. There's people from all uh, racial bath- backgrounds, sexual orientations, gender identities, socioeconomic systems. Really, it's just everyone comes here. And... They're invited in, people are really warm and welcoming. The moment you walk in, someone offers to give you a tour, show you around, make you feel at home. Cup of tea. tea. I know. You can actually enjoy it. And then the teachers are top notch, which is really important. And there's something about uh, literally taking off your shoes. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like taking off some street armor. Right. In a way. You know, I really, it was really a beautiful thing to observe just sitting there because it was uh, middle of the day, small class, but. Every race, age, demographic was represented. And then I noticed that after they came out of class, everyone sort of communed while they were putting their shoes on, and they were sort of talking about their experience. And it created um, a beautiful sense of community. Yeah, they were all in it together. And, you know, everyone's got their reason for starting to meditate. Some people are like, oh, I love the last five minutes of yoga. Right. Some people say, I'm totally stressed out of my finance job, and my doctor said he's going to put me on medication unless I do something. This is the last resort. I'll give you a try. Right. And in both cases, they're sitting there and they're enjoying the experience. The teachers are guiding them every step of the way. They're actually able to have a moment of peace in a really busy and chaotic day. And that's already pretty huge for them, so they feel connected. Well, I mean, especially here in New York City. Mm-hmm. I mean, where you think this is just, this is like the, the apex of, you know, frenetic energy, stress, um, busyness, people moving at high speeds. And to be able to walk in and pop out of your office, come over for at lunchtime, start your morning, end your day, uh, you know, just come out. You can take classes all, for all different periods of time, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have longer events that are 90 minutes, but most of our offerings are 30 or 45 minutes. Right. And they all revolve around a theme. So if you have trouble sleeping, we have mindful sleep. Right. If you want to set an intention for your day, mindful intention. Right. If you just want to have less stress in your life, mindful breath. So all different ways of working with your mind and your body so that you can actually maximize your day and actually live a life of meaning. Right. And um, obviously, beginner classes, mm-hmm. people shouldn't be intimidated about no. feeling like they don't know how to meditate. They're all different levels, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, most, I would say 70% of what we offer is beginner level. 
And then for people who do have a practice, they want to try it out. We also have intermediate and advanced classes. But all of our teachers are just so skilled at offering a little bit of like view, like why are we meditating? What's the point of this? How is this going to be helpful? Guiding you every step of the way along your meditation or your contemplation or your visualization. And then they're always available for questions, which is amazing because, you know, there's a lot of great apps and things like that these days. But at the end of your app, you need to actually, you're like, my knees hurt. What's that bad about? And you can't ask your phone. There's a human here. You can, but, and Siri might have an answer, but. Siri might be like, try stretching. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Go to mindful. Right, exactly. We'll train you to do it, yeah. Exactly. No, it's it's a beautiful thing, but I'm, as soon as I was sitting here, I was thinking, okay, we need one in every quadrant of Manhattan, and now we need one in every major city. We need them in the airports. I mean, I'm sure... How? When did this come to you? How did this idea come? So, after my first... Sorry, after I wrote my first book, The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, I was traveling nonstop. I was at universities, I was at companies, I was really just all across the board. You know, I, I you mentioned the airports. I thought, yeah, I practiced in a lot of airports. Did you? Um, oh, God, yeah. But at this point, you know, I, I feel... So like how, how did you do that? Well, I don't recommend it for someone who's brand new, but at a certain point you feel like, oh, I can just practice wherever. Right. Like loud noises and busyness isn't necessarily going to shake me out of my practice. I'm okay to just settle wherever I am, which is nice. Right. Um, but for many years I was traveling and I just kept hearing over and over again, where can I just drop in and learn to meditate without it being a religious thing, as you said? without committing a full weekend, because I don't have a full weekend because I have kids, without doing um, a five-week course I have to balance with my work that never lets me out on time. So something that they could just get in bite size, I thought, okay, there's got to be something out there. I couldn't find it. Then my business partner, partner Ellie Burroughs, um, she'd been volunteering for my nonprofit, the Institute for Compassionate Leadership. We'd become friends. We had tea one day, and she sat down across from me and looked me in the eyes and said, why doesn't this thing exist? I said, oh my God, I've been thinking about this. But she really articulated it. She says, you know, I'm the, I'm the ideal client. I want to try a bunch of different types of meditation, lots of different lineages. I'm not exactly sure which one appeals to me most at this point. Where can I go? I said, there's nothing. But we can build it. Right. And she said, I know what it should look and feel like. So all this beautiful design is really Ellie Burroughs. And then all I had to do was bring the teachers and content, which was fun for me. Right. Because I know teachers in the Vedic lineages and the Buddhist lineages and Kundalini and Jewish meditation teachers and Hindu meditation teachers and... The whole gamut. Very welcoming, very synergistic. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it was beautiful partnership in that regard, that we were able to just balance each other in that way. How long did it take you to pull it together? We met in July of 2014 for that, and then slowly started the wheels going, and then we opened these doors in November of 2015. Yeah, well, I'm really blown away. I mean, I did the research, and I read about it, and I've seen pictures, but it really is about experiencing it. Yeah, I mean, and, that's the thing. You have to walk in and just You have see to it really yourself. walk in, and you ha- you're, you're sort of like this, this like wave of calm comes over you, and I wish I lived closer. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, we'll open one next to you, though. Yeah, there you go. We okay. need one in Woodstock. There we go. So, uh, yeah, restaurants count a successful night in uh, table seatings, and I guess you counted in cushions, right? It's <laughs> true, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I never, you know, even in um, the Shambhala centers I worked, we didn't have as sophisticated software like we do here. And in the six months we've been open, we've had 16,000 cushions. Wow. Which is crazy. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, it's a lot. So tell us how this works, because your website's beautiful, and it says your tagline is, space to breathe, Mm -hmm. book your cushion. Mm -hmm. So explain how, how you're running this. Yeah, so people can go online, or they can just call us up. We have a lot of people who are a little... Um, not as used to the technolo- technology end of it. 
So you would have an account and you would just book into a specific spot in the same way that you might book into a bike or something like that at SoulCycle. Right. Some people love to sit in the front. Some people are like, I'm a little wary, I want to sit in the back. That's totally okay. Right. But you show up and you already know, okay, there's someone that's going to greet me, someone that's going to show me around. I'm going to have clearly identified seat. I don't have to get there super early and hustle to get a seat. It's all really set out for you so that you know what you're getting when you walk in the door. And you also uh, work with offices. Like you will mm-hmm. bring mindful to to the workplace. Right? With a lot of these things, we're just responding to need. You know, oh, like it's, God knows we need it. I know. It's, <gasps> We didn't set out to say, oh, and we're going to do corporate stuff. Right. But all of a sudden, even before we opened, a lot of companies reached out and said, we need this in our office. Right. So we brought someone on who's absolutely wonderful, and um, she organizes all of the different corporate offices. So we have people, our teachers, going out across the city, and some places have it once a week, some people have it twice a week. Right. But all of a sudden, this is becoming something that their offices do. Smart employers. Yeah. Very smart in place. So why? why? Why do we need meditation? Right? So why, why does anyone need meditation? So there's right. the science stuff behind it, right? So Harvard, everybody loves that science. They love that, right? They're coming out with a study almost every day, it feels like, where they're saying, okay, you meditate a little bit for a couple weeks. Every day for a couple weeks, all of a sudden there's increased gray matter in the hippocampus. There's more activity in the ACC. What that means is there's less knee-jerk reactions. You're less held by stress. I mean, stressful things are still going to happen to you, but... You're less, How you process it, you're less, right? Yeah, you're less stuck by it. Right. Um, you ha- are more productive, more efficient, you have better memory, it normalizes your sleep, it boosts your immune system. So all of this stuff is coming out saying, no matter what your ailment is, right. like you should give this a try, it's going to help you. Right. And you know, the Buddhists, like myself, are sitting here being like, oh, thanks, we've been saying this for 2,600 no, years. No, he's been listening to us. Yeah, yeah, right. thanks, Harvard. <laughs> um, so that's fine. Um, but it's cool because now all of a sudden it's not just your spiritual hippie friend saying, oh, you should try meditation. It's your right. doctor. It's your therapist. It's your mother. Everyone's becoming hip to the job. Yeah. Right. Because what we're doing isn't working. Yeah. We're getting... I mean, it's literally the antithesis of what we normally do. We carry on so much stress, so much right. anxiety in our bodies and our minds. Even taking a 10-minute break of that right. is really huge. Right. That's what I was, I was also thinking. Just bringing it into the office space, even if it's not 30 minutes or 45 minutes, but saying, hey, everybody, we're going to just do a morning meditation just to start us off or something in midday, before lunch, after lunch, whatever. And just think how that would transform the energy of the whole office and that whole community. Yeah. And it does. You know, I'm a firm believer that when we think of society, we can get overwhelmed, right? We think, oh my God, there's so much wrong with society these days, right? So instead of saying out there, things are wrong, we can look at our right. societies, like our work society. That's a community, Like right? what can I fix in what my... What can I do here? Right. What's my, I have right. a family society. I have right. a romantic society. That's me and my partner. So we have these little societies and we say, oh, I actually play an active role Micro here. societies. Micro societies. <laughs> right. That's exactly it. Right. So if we show up and become more mindful and compassionate there, then that affects that little society, our work society, our family society, what have you. Right. And I think that has a greater ripple overall in terms of society yeah. in a bigger sense. So I keep reading everywhere that you say your goal is to make meditation accessible to all. Yeah, that's it. And I, I thought of some new taglines for you. Awesome. Okay. Awakening to go. <laughs> yeah, okay. Come get your alm on. Okay. And drive by centering. <laughs> yeah. I just love this idea of dropping in. Yeah. That's it. Dropping in and dropping in, really. It is. That's actually, that might be the best one. Okay, so what is this name? That is Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Yeah, it sounds so great coming out of your mouth. He said, 
The practice of meditation is not so much about the hypothetical attainment of enlightenment, it is about leading a good life. Yeah, and I love that. I love that about the Shambhala tradition. So Trung Rinpoche was a teacher who brought these teachings from Tibet over the mountains, really, into India, then came west, established Shambhala centers worldwide. And his whole thing was, yes, we the ultimate awakening here is, is Buddhahood, right? So coming from the Buddhist tradition, that's what we're doing. But it means nothing if we're not also practicing good conduct. We're showing up for people in an authentic way. So the whole thing is meditation is a way that we actually start to become more present and authentic in our day-to-day life. So we were talking about the science before, and that's great. Like, why should anyone meditate? Okay, cool. Increase gray matter. Right. I don't know <laughs> no. if after a lifetime of meditation my gray matter has been increased. Right. But I do know that I am more able to be present for the wonderful and not so wonderful parts of my life. Everything from when I am out with friends or on a date with my partner and we're actually enjoying each other's company, I'm there. Two, holding my father's hand in the hospital when he was very sick and dying. Mm-hmm. Like I could, I feel very good about both of these things because I was actually there for them. What a blessing that you came into this world meditating, yeah, basically. it is. Right? I really do feel quite lucky. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, it's it's taken me a, a lifetime to find it, and I think back on some, some really dramatic events in my own life and think, if only I'd had this. When I was researching uh, you and going through these fabulous books, I decided, I don't know why, I really gravitated towards Walk Like a Buddha. Maybe because the subtitle says, even if your boss sucks, your ex is torturing you, and you're hungover again. <laughs> right. Something for everyone. <laughs> Something for everyone. Right. It's a it's a it's a poo poo platter there. Right. But you write, you speak, you meditate, and you drink. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and I, I again, I'm going to go back to saying that you have this beautiful gift of taking profound spiritual text and putting it into a contemporary context, bringing your you know pulling the words from the book and gifting your reader with the ability to implement that into their own lives is, as I imagine, the great what your greatest intention could possibly have been. Yeah. You know, I really thought, writing that first book, The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, and then of course the subsequent ones, if there was just one person that started meditating as, as a result, and then they went about the rest of their life, you know, maybe they rose in the ranks of some major corporation, whatever, but at least they were meditating the entire mm-hmm. time. 30 years from now, they're the CFO, they're wielding incredible power, but they're actually mindful and nice to people. Like, that would be huge. So if we could, I thought, if I could just get some people meditating as a result of these books, you know, yes, there's wonderfully profound teachings in Buddhism, and I'm trying to translate them and make them applicable for modern-day life, but the end goal here is I just feel like it's five books on, you should try meditation, and if you do it, you'll realize that underneath your layers of neurosis, you're basically good, you're basically okay. And you might have fun. And you definitely will have fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually laughed so many times when I was reading this book. Well, first of all, Walk Like a Buddha was written or published in 2013. Yes. And I'm reading it in 2016, and it's timeless. I would say there's maybe a couple things, like maybe I would like to uh, switch out Match.com for Tinder. When yeah, that's right. About... I think Tinder was around that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, but aside from that, it was ti- it really is a timeless book. And it had me laughing out loud. And I want to just talk about the premise of this because this derived out of an advice column mm-hmm. that you had uh, called "What Would Sid Do?" Yeah, and Sid being Siddhartha, Sid yeah. right? Okay, so right right off the the bat, I was um, very amused. And you had 
more than 100 people write in questions. Oh, yeah. And nothing was taboo. That's true. You wrote, it, you wrote this book in six weeks in New York City. That's true. Quite an amazing journey. You want to just talk about that for a second? Sure. Oh, gosh. So this was, it was a bit of a marathon, but it was so much fun. You know, like if you got an email and you just really were like, oh my God, I would love to talk to you about this and you write them right back. It felt right. like that. Right. Like people would submit questions and be like, oh my God, I have to test like this the question. Like the Dear Abby so of Buddhism. <laughs> so yeah, right. It felt like a little bit like that. It was, you know, for a number of months, years, I was doing this column called, what would Sid do? Sid being Siddhartha, the name of the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama. Which you, imagine, you said, you, know, you say that Siddhartha was a confused 20 and 30 something looking what? to learn how to live a spiritual life. Hello, you could. You that's know, it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it. Like, that's so many of the Again, you're bringing him into contemporary context yeah. and making it relatable and saying, like, oh, this guy could do it. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing stopping us, right? right. So we have the same ability to wake up that the Buddha did. And we're probably coming from a similar place. So there's an element here of, so you said nothing was taboo. It's everything from, um, you know, someone write me in, it was generally like romantic stuff. That was always a very popular right. one. Uh, work stuff, social action stuff. How do I even get a practice going? You know, just these basic elements of our life. How do we live a more mindful, compassionate life? Even if we are swamped by email, even right. if, you know, we are on match.com or would the Buddha have a Facebook page? The, or yeah, exactly. would, What would the Buddha do about tattoos? Right, or, yeah. And um, it was actually really interesting yeah. for me, too. I was like, this I is love a great question. What, right. is, what is the Buddhist view on tattoos? You know, I, I, I now have them, but I was thinking about getting right. them at the time. And I, so I actually talked to some Buddhist teachers that I really respect right. and looked over the traditional texts. And, you know, it, there is something really beautiful about that, where it's like you do it as a reminder for something. It has to be significant. And... That, you know, if you do something dharmic, like Buddhist, that you want to, like, look cool, in some way it's going to lose the significance, it's not going to mean anything to you. So right. it has to be something that's going to continuously remind you of the qualities that you want to cultivate in your life. And you said, I have never professed to be a master of anything. I'm just a guy. But then again, so is Siddhartha. Yeah, and I mean, I'm definitely not trying to draw any sort of comparison there. I'm, I'm no enlightened human being. I am just a guy who has been doing this all of his life, you know, this meditation thing. And it's fascinating to see that all of a sudden other people are interested in it. And I'm glad because it's been so helpful for me. Going back to that issue of compartmentalizing, you know, that's exactly it. Like if we're going to practice something, we have to bring that into all aspects of our lives and all the things that we encounter, whether that is social media or how we're interacting in our office, how we're interacting in our community, how we're judging other people. Um, are we judging tattoos? Are we judging people in bars drinking and smoking? People sometimes say, oh, what's the reaction? The reaction's always positive. You know, it's always people saying, oh my God, thank goodness, because I do all these things and I was feeling guilty right. that I would have to compartmentalize my life. And then once in a blue moon, someone's like, I can't believe that you still eat a little bit of meat. You know, and it's like, I totally <laughs> right. get where they're coming from. It's something right. I work right. with and I have a whole conversation with them about. Right. But, you know, it's like, it's so interesting. It's like, as Pema Chodron, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher, um, often talks about smoking. She's like, you could be as attached to your view that no one should be smoking as they are to their actual cigarettes. You also said, I'm sort of a mess, and also, okay, we're all sort of a mess. And that's it. I mean, I, I make no um, pretense of being above the fray, so to speak. You know, there are hard days, and there are painful things that have come right. up in my life. And, you know, I think there's an element here. It's like, underneath whatever neurosis is going on with all of us, there is this belief that right below the surface there is peace. And that's our innate quality. You know, that's 
from the Buddhist perspective, who we are. That's our birthright. I believe we learn through the sharing of, of authentic stories. So when you tell us what you've been through, and you tell us that you've been a mess, even when we look around and see this beautiful creation and read your bio, it's really nice to know that meditation and Buddhism and centering and peacefulness, it's not something that's out there. Right. It's something that if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And so you're spot on. I mean, it's we all have the capability to take 10 minutes of the day and right. rest with the breath. Right. And gradually train the mind to be present. Gradually train ourselves to be a little bit kinder to ourselves when we get lost in thought or make mistakes. In life. Well, we're the worst to, uh, to ourselves. That's it. My friend has this yeah. beautiful term, um, inner bitch radio. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I don't even have to explain it, but you're already like rock going. Is that Megan? Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay. Yes, it's my, it's my co-author for the book, um, yeah. How to Love Yourself and Sometimes. Yeah, another great Megan book. And uh, yeah, Megan used this term and I was like, I love that term because it's... <laughs> what is it again? Inner bitch radio. Inner bitch radio. We just talk oh, to ourselves all day yeah. long. You jerk, why did you do that? You should have right. said that. You're such an idiot. You're such an idiot. Yeah. Everyone saw that, whatever it is. Right, yeah. right. Well, you also said... If there's a mistake to be made on the spiritual path, I've made it. Yeah. I really feel like I, the only way I've learned is studying at the feet of wonderful teachers. Like my teacher, Sakyad Mipam Rinpoche. And that. Like if, I, if there's something to be made, it's like, oh no, I shouldn't right. have done that. I won't do that again. Yeah. Well, you may not uh, give yourself enough credit and deem yourself a, an enlightened being, but you have been deemed the cool kids Buddhist. That's true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think it was the Boston Phoenix after the first book came out. Yeah. And um, I would like them to re-up it and still call me a kid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I could get we'll that. We'll renew that title, time. please. Yes. Exactly. Just keep calling me young. Thank you. <laughs> I thought it might be fun for us to just delve into a couple topics. Sure. And, you know, sort of like... I love, a, I love it because this is like three, four books ago, and I was like, all right, let's go back yeah, to let's that. Yeah, let's, let's go. Let's go back. Okay. Well, because because you know be what? Fresh. I was completely relating to it okay. and, and relating it. to issues in my own life. So I'm going to call this the, the Buddhist is in self-help desk, you know? Done. All right. So how would the Buddha advise us when it comes to smoking and drinking? Um, you know, I think the important thing with these things is that we look at our intention behind it. And I would throw sex into the mix, too. So right. like if we're going to casually date or, you know, go home with someone. You know, why are we doing it? Are we doing it to run away from our emotions, to tamp them down, to ignore them? Or is this something that we actually feel like, oh, I want to, you know, a beer by itself is not good or bad, but thinking makes it so, so right. to speak. You know, if a beer could be a great motivator to bring friends together. Right. And if that's your motivation for going out and having a drink, I want to reconnect with my old friend and catch up. That's and wonderful, celebrate. right? That's a different sort of intention right. then. I've had a hard week, I'm going to drink it away. Right. So knowing our intention is key with all these things, smoking, drinking, dating, etc. And then um, trying to show up fully for the activity itself. Like if you're going to smoke, actually enjoy the cigarette. Right. Don't like space out and not even... Multitask. Yeah, right? Right. If you're going to actually drink, do like a quality drink and enjoy it and be there right. for it. If you're going to go home with someone, don't like do all of the many things that we do to like leave our bodies when right. we're actually with someone. Um, just be there. So there's like sort of the ground of it all is setting our intention, the activity we try and show up fully for, and then there's the fruitional aspect. How do we feel after? If we feel uplifted, if we feel good, wonderful. Then that's something that we might want to continue to explore. And if we don't, if we feel like that was a mistake, then good news, we don't have to do it again. Right. Okay. And uh, when it comes to social media, you said if you're spending more time on Facebook than meditating, then you are consciously saying that you would rather live a life based on distraction than on being present. I'll stand by that too. Good. Yeah. 
Um, Good, yeah. right? I told you. I'll stand by it. I'm, I'm into yeah. it. I think when we open up our computers, we might be like, okay, I've got to get through work. And we're like, uh, this is a tough question coming up an email. I'll click on this tab over here and I will do online shopping. I will do Facebook. <laughs> I will do whatever. Like, oh, there's nothing going on Facebook. Class. Oh, good. I'll go to Twitter. <laughs> I'll book a class right. somewhere. I'll, you know, it's like right. we're trying to fill our space and we're trying to distract ourselves. So right. If we can actually just, when we get uncomfortable or we feel like we want to get distracted, just notice that and stay for a moment. That's already huge in terms of our training. So meditation is the antithesis, right? Yeah. It's like, hey, let's just be here for right. a minute. So do people actually check their... Yeah, so when people come to Mindful for a class, one of the first things they're asked is, like, do you want to check your phone at the front desk so they can actually just disconnect completely? Right, which is nice. No phones ringing during... And then, you know, not surprisingly, that's why people meet each other. That's why they become friends. That's why they're meeting romantic Getting back to conversation, real connection. Exactly. Okay, so now let's move on to sports. Uh, I do have to ask you, when you wrote this book, you were a Red Sox fan. Uh Uh-huh. Living uh-huh. in New York Yankee territory, you know? I was laughing because as a parent of, of a young man who plays multiple sports, mm-hmm. this comes up all the time, this separation, you know, it's the us against them, oh, the, yeah. the team uh, dynamics yeah. and, and what that brings up. And sometimes it's pretty ugly. Yeah. I think it was uh, the teacher that we were talking about before, Children Trimper and Pache who was brought to a soccer game and he saw them going back and forth across the field, kicking the ball, getting goals, going back, not getting goals, and just struggling. And he looked at it and he goes, people have been doing this for thousands of years, mm-hmm. you know? And it was more about right. the like underlying, like, yes, I am for these people and I am against that people, as right. opposed to like the actual sport, which we can enjoy. We fall sure. into it though, right away. Everything, right? It's like, like I couldn't even get my, I, I couldn't even like not get my Red Sox Dig in, you know. All right, I'm not least. <laughs> not gonna go there. I like all sports. I'm gonna send you a Yankee hat. <laughs> you know, it's funny. So I spent a time living um, out in Columbus, Ohio, and I was working on the Obama campaign. They host you in like someone's house. So like all these wonderful volunteers open these doors up for community organizers who are living in a, certain areas. And I happened to be um, hosted by a family who were um, Boston Red Sox fans, and they didn't even like believe me that I would ever like the Red Sox. I literally lived in a basement that had wall to wall wallpaper that was that was the Red Sox city. Yeah. It was actually like the entire, you should at least know it's called Fenway. Fenway. Excuse me. I even know it's called um, Fenway. And all the couches were red, and they had Red Sox cushions on them. Oh, and then wow. in the fireplace, they had a Yankees cap. That's where they kept the Yankees cap was in the fireplace. So it was very adamant. It was very. You're like, okay. It's like I'm just here to okay. knock on doors. Right. <laughs> Please oh, don't for me to talk about sports. Okay. So yeah. seriously though, how do we bring our mindfulness mm-hmm. to sports? Okay. So if we're playing sports, you know that's pretty clear. My book. My right. teacher wrote a book called Running with the Mind of Meditation, and I think that's beautiful because it's not just about running. It's about how do we move our bodies? How do we? It's everything from stretching to running to walking to yoga, and it's this idea that we could actually bring mindfulness or the thing that we cultivate in our meditation practice to all of our activities. And you hear this with all the time, you know, every like whatever your favorite athlete is, they're practicing meditation right. at this point because it brings them to the present. They're there, they're more skillful when they're actually in the present moment. So we know that. So a little bit of meditation goes a long way in terms of actually making us better at sports, which is interesting. Well I don't think they're the problem. I don't think the kids on the on the team on the on the field are actually the problem. I think, I it's, think the it's the parents the people, on the yeah, sidelines exactly. and, and the audience. So ideally, this is what I always recommend for those people. 
is actually remembering. I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I call this the just like me situation. Right. Where oh, yes. you look at someone and you're like, that is, and same thing when you're talking about the woman who had a cigarette and you're like, oh my God, you shouldn't be smoking, right? Right. And you look at someone like that or someone who's cheering for your kid to fall down and, right. you know, right. so that their kid could steal the ball. And you look at them and you say, well, they just want to be happy, just like me. Mm. That's really they good. They probably are struggling today, yeah. just like me. You start to think about both the positive things right. that you have in common, but also some of the negative things. This person is pretty loud and aggressive, just like me. You may not be like that in that right, moment, but right, you know what it's right, like to be like right. that, and you actually develop some empathy for them. See, that's really good. I could have used that uh, because I actually did experience something like that recently with a with with a parent on the sideline that was just so out of control, mm-hmm. almost thrown out by the referees. Um, and it was hard. Yeah. It was really hard to muster that just like me business. Yeah. <laughs> but that is the only thing that would have probably brought me back. Just thinking about the commonalities. Right. Yeah. Let's go to politics sure. because I loved when you said that I hardly think the Buddha was a hide out and meditate sort of guy. He was actually radical for his time. Mm-hmm. Going back to your work on the Obama campaign, which must have been like wildly exciting, um, you also had a, you were on a five minute conference call after. President Obama won, correct? I believe the moment that you're referring to is this moment of real vulnerability. And, you know, you could love Obama, you can hate Obama. Again, this is fixed But he's mind. just like me. But he is just like me. You know, he's right. a human being. And um, obviously I'm a, a fan because I spent so many of my months knocking doors and talking to people about him. But afterwards, he gave this beautiful speech where he talked about how he didn't know that we were going to win. You know, when it came down to election day and he was looking at the numbers, he wasn't sure. And, you know, he had to sit there and think, okay, what what happened here? And he thought about the thousands of young people who had actually motivated themselves to go out, get off their butts, and go do social change. Live in houses with... uh... With with bands of of opposite sports teams and things like that. Um, And really devote their life to just trying to fight for certain ideals that they believe in. Right. And he thought, okay... If I still lose, like, we still created something amazing. And we still inspired thousands of young people to take on leadership positions in a compassionate way. Right. And as he was talking about this, um, tears came down his eyes. And here it's the leader of the free world, you know. Right. Talking about, I mean, thankfully, you know, in this case he won, blah, blah, blah. But he was moved to tears just thinking about the number of people who are now going to go out and do good work. And that's really what was important to him in that moment. And I, I mean, we all started crying. Nationwide. Well, think about Staff what that must have felt like. You know, to we're have, all exhausted. You know? All of those people having, they had his back and they were working yeah. for him. I mean, coming together, the collective um, energy and emotion behind that. Yeah. Quite an amazing thing to be. It is, it's, not, it's not even about Obama. It's just about a moment of, of beautiful humanness. Humanness and community, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. With politics, then, I mean, the current, you know, election, and I mean, I, I guess it, it's much like sports. We can't. We just have to keep reminding ourselves in this contentious um, election that we have to just keep bringing it back in, yeah. and just like me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, whoever your, you know, opponent may be, if it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, they're just like us. Whoever you think is like the bad guy here. Right. Right. Like, just stay out of the rhetoric. Right, like dropping the rhetoric, remembering that they have families, that they, you know, really mean well Mm -hmm. according to their particular point of view. And yeah, they have a lot of fixed opinions. They're trying to push them on other people, but 
underneath that, they actually have the same ability to wake up that we do. I wanted to get into online dating. Um, you covered tattoos before, mm -hmm. but um, online dating, you said, if you're going to do online dating and want to apply Buddhist, Buddhist principles to that act, start by presenting yourself authentically. Yeah. I think a lot of times when we sit down with someone, we say, what do you want from me? Right. I will give you that. Right. Right. But who do you want me to be? Who do you want me to be? I'm actually, you know, six foot and. Right. <laughs> I think that you might like me I taller. I 125 I think pounds. You might like me thinner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As opposed to like, oh, here's who I am, and who we are isn't like innately sexy. If we actually have confidence. If you see someone who's just confident in who right. they are, that's sexy. I don't care what they look like or what you're attracted to. It's just it is. Well, I was laughing about your friend Ivan. His oh profile. my gosh! So my friend <laughs> Ivan, um, his friend was meeting someone on Match.com said, will you please look at her, let me know what you think. Ivan has to create an uh, account to log in and see her. Ivan, knowing that he'll never use this account again, writes down a screen name, not so well hung. <laughs> um, and then goes, looks at her, says, right. she right. looks great, you should go on the date, she doesn't look totally insane, you'll be right. fine, don't worry, go. All of a sudden, Ivan goes back to his inbox and it's flooded with messages from women saying, Oh my God, you're so funny. I can't believe you're funny. You're, you're authentic. authentic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I, exactly. So then, you know, his social card was filled, right? His social card was his filled. dance card. And then it became our trivia name. We yeah. were, had a weekly trivia game and we were, we were, <laughs> everyone had like totally respectful names and we were not so well hung. <laughs> Tell me about idiot compassion. Idiot compassion. Yeah. I mean, this is an interesting one because, you know, the Buddha never taught a like lay down and be a doormat sutra, right? He's like... We don't have to be down with everything. Right. right. Yeah. It's not like just, you know, oh, I'm, I'm Buddhist now, so I'm going to be completely complacent. I make peace with everything. Right. 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 It's actually like I'm actually more able to be compassionate and skillful in a way that's helpful to people. And that looks like all sorts of things. So compassion can sometimes look cutting. You know, if we end up in a situation where our friend breaks up with their abusive boyfriend, comes sleeping on our couch, crying day in, day out, it's the millionth time this has happened we take care of them for the millionth time, and then they wake up one day and say, good news, we're getting back together. Great. Great, you could be like, oh, I'm a good, go I'm a good Buddhist, I'm right. kind. You, good for you. Or you right. could say, hey, can you sit down with me for a second and talk about this, because I think there's a cycle that you're going through that may not be helpful. And they may not want to hear that, but that might ultimately be the most compassionate thing in the moment, because that helps them work through their own stuff. So in that case, if we were just kind, right. oh, that's idiot compassion. Right. Compassion, compassion is like, cut it out, stop doing that. Another quote from the book, if you want to shift the psychological environment of a group, you have to do it from a place of openness rather than uh, from your own sense of what is right and wrong. Yeah. I think a lot of us come to a situation, going back to the political discussion right. too, we say, this is what needs to happen. Right. I've thought this through. Right. And I know. I'm going to force it on right. all of you. Right. You take the pill and you swallow it. Right. It's really, you know, sort of wonderful to run a place like Mindful where it's a bunch of meditators. Right. Where we sit down and we say, hey, I've got this great idea. What do you think? <laughs> right. It's like, what do you think? And also right. like, does this make yeah. sense? Let's think right. this through. Let's, let's right. actually like give it a lot of space, see how it feels. And there's something about like, oh, when we give it space, intuition and wisdom naturally arises. Right. And that can be in a busy boardroom. It could be in making a long-term plan for a company. It could be making long-term plans for you and your partner. It's like... Instead of saying, here's how I think things should happen, we date for this long, we move in at this month, we get married after this month, we have kids at this year, whatever, it's like, oh, I'm just going to be here and see how this plays out, and I'm just going to show up fully for it. And, I, and these things will happen. Like, right. There's some trust in it. 
So yeah, we sort of check our fixed expectations and opinions at the door and just try and engage your life in a more authentic way. And another wonderful quote from the book, you said, Benjamin Franklin once famously declared, when you're finished changing, you're finished. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, I think that's a brilliant one, that ultimately we're always in evolution. We're always changing. We're always evolving. I mean, we've talked a little bit about my own story. And, you know, I don't think I ever thought mindful was the end goal, right? Like, oh, at some point I'll have a meditation studio that's dropping. Right. Like, that wasn't always the thing. It's like, oh, I enjoy meditation. Oh, I'm being asked to teach meditation. Oh, there's no one talking about some of these issues, and maybe I should write a book about it so that I can engage people in a conversation about those issues. And it goes on and on, and here we are with the meditation right. studio. So I think we're always changing, and the only way that we stop is death. Well, you've created a life out of what you love. Yeah, that's true. Clearly, you're really passionate. I mean, that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing, and it's apparent, and it's what I try to impart upon my son. Um, because I don't want him to wait till he's 50 years old to realize that he's been in the rat race and you know he's been saving his hobbies for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a beautiful thing that you were meditating since you were six yeah. and that you've been on this incredible, incredible <clears throat> journey. So now it's led to mindful, you know, five books under, under your belt, found, um, being the founder of all these incredible organizations and groups and What's the dream? Now, what's the, the dream on the near horizon for you and for Mindful? You know, I think the, the pain of working with a meditation teacher is that they're going to look you in the eyes and be like, well, I'm just here right now. But I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, you know, Mindful, as you said, is six months old, and we just, um, you know, knock on wood that we're doing well, and yeah. people are coming. We've had a couple sold-out classes today alone, and I think it's... Um, it's wonderful. We just want to make it as accessible as to all New Yorkers. If we need to grow, then we'll grow. Right. If we, if companies want us to go to their company, we will go. You know, like right. we'll just respond to whatever needs are there. I think that's more organic than right. my long-term strategy. That's about me because it's not about me. Right. It's about what do people need. Well, it certainly is an idea whose time has come. Oh, thank you. I hope that anybody that is remotely close to this area can get themselves here to feel it and to experience it. Your voice uh, transcends your, through your books and is incredible. And um, but this is really special, and you ha- you are really onto something here. And I applaud you. Thank you for creating it, and I thank you for sitting down with us today. Thank you. Thanks for coming to mind. One last thing. I mean, a wish for the world that everyone could actually just taste their inherent goodness just for a moment. Thank you, Lodra. It's really wonderful. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Learn more at bestselfmedia.com.